Hey, it's Greg Brady. Thanks for checking out the Toronto Today podcast. This is November the 24th, the day before U.S. Thanksgiving, uh, anticipating excitement already. Um, uh, it will make it an honorary Thanksgiving on the live show tomorrow. But the podcast features a lot of reaction to day one of the Ontario portal opening for vaccines. But not everything went smoothly. I know, right? You're shocked. But it didn't. Um, what we can do to rectify that, what we can do to kind of minimize some of the confusion on the show coming up. We speak to a mom in New York City who's been adamant about masks on little kids. We're so much further ahead than a year ago. Yet if you think about it, the mask policies are exactly the same for kids in school. So it was one thing last year. Is it quite another thing this year? A lot of parents have a lot of opinions, and it's important to listen to all those opinions. We have a lot coming up on the show uh, as well, so we hope you enjoy it. It's the Toronto Today podcast. Thanks for checking us out. Here we go. Um, Not great news at all. In fact, quite tragic news to update you on. There's a lot that's spinning in the United States. It's hard to believe that the Kyle Rittenhouse verdict was just on Friday. Uh, But this Waukesha Christmas parade that happened on Sunday An eight-year-old boy now has succumbed to his injuries. He passed away well at the parade with his uh, 12-year-old brother, who continues to heal. Um, The family had to update this. Again, pit in your stomach doesn't quite describe it. If you you saw the video, and there's one video that I I just couldn't possibly watch again that's more an overhead shot of this red SUV, Um, but if you saw the overhead video... um, you know you can't watch it again. There is video, however, that I have seen a couple times, and it's it's there's a girl in like a pink um, snowsuit, and she's out there a little bit on the road. Like you know how you line up for a parade, and the parents are kind of you know they you get you bring lawn chairs. We did Santa Claus parade for ages, a couple times in Toronto, few times where we lived in Ajax, and it's it's a to do. It's a to do when you're taking young kids, but they want to go and they want to see Santa and they want to see this and they want to see that. So you set up lawn chairs, but your kids aren't going to always sit still. We were just talking about that uh, last hour. And this girl is doing a little dance. And this car, I, like it might be, it might be four feet. It isn't, to me, it isn't even her height. If you put her sideways, that the car misses her by. And someone was taking video of it. And then the parents naturally react. And I'm not saying they should have reacted beforehand. They react and pull the girl back as quickly as possible. There's two things about this also um, that just jump out at me. One is that bail was posted um, for the uh, convicted sex offender who's out on bail, who allegedly did this. $5 million is his bail. How there's any bail at all is utterly beyond me. There's a couple things that have happened now since we spoke yesterday. His ex-girlfriend, there's been footage in most of the U.S. papers, in, and they put the video up is his ex-girlfriend was seen fleeing barefoot with a black eye before this uh, horrific rampage by this person, 39 year old Daryl Brooks. They have put out video of him actually being arrested now. But here's the one thing I'm hearing, and it's not true. And I think it's I think it's worth bringing up. There's a lot of people that have pointed to Friday and the Rittenhouse verdict and said, well, the media got this wrong and the media want it to be a certain way and the media this and the media that. And here's what I'd say. I often dismiss out of hand, like without even, you know, starting to listen. Like it's, uh, you know, I'm Axel Foley holding my hands over my ears and going, la, 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 I don't hear you when he's talking to Paul Reiser in Beverly Hills Cop. But I would say that generally speaking, I do that. But I don't think you're wrong in this particular case. I do think 
that not only did many networks in the United States and people constantly reference CNN and MSNBC, they wanted a conviction. They wanted a conviction in this particular case, but they, they've confounded and confused what the law is with their desire that, you know, Rittenhouse be convicted. They've absolutely confounded those two principles. The problems are the law. The problems are the systemic issues within the United States justice system and what you might potentially get charged for. But I'd ask people this, and I, I was able to ask people this of, of a, from a few different backgrounds. I'll put it this way. If Rittenhouse had been black, is the verdict still correct? And they struggle with that. They struggle with that. Okay. Uh, because of the laws and the laws of open carry and the laws of self-defense. And yeah, there were people that got it wrong and maybe they got it wrong intentionally about this particular case. But that's not that that's you, you can't conflate that with what's happening here. I've heard people say, where is this story? The media doesn't want to talk about this. It's a black man with an extensive criminal past who's allegedly committed this horrific, horrific, intentional vehicular rampage. And he didn't care what happened and who it happened to. Well, what are you talking about? It's the lead story everywhere. It's the lead everywhere. And there will be great debate about. Now, if you are of a liberal bent and you say this is uh, true about Rittenhouse and this is true about the laws and this is true about systemic racism and this is true about Black Lives Matter and on and on, you better do the same here. Like, that's all I ask. That's all I try to be. Play it up the middle. Be consistent. Understand that, yeah, this person, regardless of race or background, should never have been out on the streets. Not with the rap sheet that he's got. It, like, that's going to get documented, and we're going to try and figure out. I mentioned yesterday, supposedly because of COVID, you, I'm sorry, that's outrageous that you get to the point where you're, like, dealing with domestic violence and saying, ah, COVID and all that, we don't have time to process that through the court system. You just hang out and do what you do, and we'll get to that. We'll get to those charges a little later on. No, 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 no. There has to be a better solution from that. There has to be a much, much better solution than that. He didn't, was involved in a domestic incident prior to the attack, left the scene before police could respond. But remember what was happening on Monday was the concept that, well, was, was this a police chase gone wrong? No, no, no. Don't blame the cops. Blame the cops when it's necessary. Blame the cops when it's fair. Blame the cops when it's valid. Sure. Absolutely. Right. We just saw yesterday uh, judgment in uh, uh, basically a uh, investigation into what happened with DeFonte Miller and the Terrio brothers. And that's fair. Get, blame the cops. Absolutely blame the cops if they've done something wrong. This is a individual that has to be accountable for his actions and should never have been out on the street, should never have been in a position to harm anybody whether it's a girlfriend, ex-girlfriend, or whether it's getting behind the wheel of a car and running human beings over with no concern for human life whatsoever. But let's not play the game that, uh, that this isn't a story everywhere. It's a story everywhere. How we react to the story is what makes us different, and it's where things often do indeed get politicized. And by the way, um, not to defend, far from it, Kyle Rittenhouse, but you heard his defense lawyer say yesterday, I played the clip on the show, this guy should lay low, he should change his name, he should get get his life back, he could consider, if he felt like he was maligned or 
um, slandered by media sources, he could consider civil litigation. Where is he last night? Mar-a-Lago. Where is he? Who's he hanging out with? Donald Trump. Who's he photo opping with? Donald Trump. So um, at a certain point, you can't say Kyle Rittenhouse is getting used. He's utilizing all this for his own benefit and his own notoriety at this point. Okay, makes his own decisions. Clearly, he did that night in Wisconsin. Um, anybody who's been a, uh, a parent and anybody who's gone and got their own looking to get their own appointment knows that there's been a lack of in-person visits with family doctor. I'll give you a quick quick story uh because i'm so excited to talk to our next guest i don't want to delay it very much but my wife's had a problem with an ear like water in the ear she doesn't know if she got it from the the pool at the gym or what it is so she goes to see our uh, our family doctor and the family doctor you know gives her a re- referral to a um an ear specialist and then the ear specialist says okay yep yeah, we'll just we'll hook up and do a zoom call a little later on and she's like huh like i just went in person to see my family doctor How can you, you can't, how do you do an ear exam over Zoom on a computer? And this is the struggle that we've dealt with now for 20, 21 months is the lack of in-person visits. I want to bring on Dr. Sheila Singh. She's a pediatric neurosurgeon at uh, Max uh, Children's Hospital in Hamilton. It is great to have you on, Dr. Singh. Thank you for making the time for me and our audience. Morning, Greg. It's nice to be here. I, I you know, I, I'm so glad that you're um, you're speaking up. You're speaking out. I don't think uh, I don't think parents quite realize uh, until they think about it and look inward that I probably haven't taken my kid. And I'd say this for my two teenage boys. They haven't been in front of a doctor in two and a half, three years. I see them as being healthy. I there's been nothing that's gone terribly wrong, but that's too long. And many parents have pushed it even longer than that because of the pandemic, haven't they? Absolutely, Greg. So I think, I mean, obviously the pandemic has had a huge impact on on society, but also healthcare delivery. And if you think about it, I'm glad that your sons are healthy. Um, and uh, but if you even think about well baby checkups, we mm-hmm. do a lot of screening in our medical system, and we have an excellent medical system in Canada. And when we screen, we pick up diseases where we didn't necessarily anticipate the person to be sick. And Anything that we can pick up early is obviously easier to treat. So during the pandemic, a lot of elective procedures and screening exams for cancer, for example, have been delayed or canceled. And that really raises concerns over what will happen with the future outcomes of patients if they're at risk for cancer and they're diagnosed late. Um, So this is something we've been facing during the pandemic. And to your point, most healthcare institutions Now we have safety procedures and guidelines in place. I think at the very beginning of the pandemic, when we didn't know what we were dealing with, it was reasonable to tell everybody to stay home and not go to a hospital. But in very short order, most health care institutions put in guidelines and and operating procedures to, to reduce viral spread. And then at that point, I think we really should have resumed uh, normal other healthcare delivery functions. Well, it's one, it's one thing, sorry to interrupt. It's one thing, isn't it, to talk about a backlog of, of uh, elective surgeries. And we all kind of kind of blanch at that word a little bit, thinking if there's something wrong with your hip, your knee, your shoulder, those aren't, ter- we're not talking cosmetic surgery. These are things you need to function, to work, to parent, to do lots of things. But when we, when we flip the script and push it back towards, you know, uh, kids and and doing what you do, you're spotting later diagnosis of tumors that had you you know had had other neurosurgeons like yourself spotted them earlier. 
There's just an easier fix. There's no easy fix for cancer, clearly, but we're more on top of that situation. And it's something that should worry parents, I think. I agree with you. And that's why um, I'm really happy to be here with you today to get the message out that if there, there's even a single concerning symptom in your child, don't be afraid any longer to come straight to your hospital. And to your earlier point, I really do think in-person visits, especially for new symptoms or, you know, things you, you didn't expect in your child, an in-person visit is always going to be more um, likely to lead to a diagnosis. You know, I think the video consults and, and telemedicine have a great role in reaching people in remote areas who otherwise couldn't see a doctor or, for example, for delivering routine news, like the results of an MRI scan that's normal. I don't need to bring a person in face-to-face to give them that news. But I think short of those things, almost always you can trust that an in-person visit is better for you and your child. And there's simply no reason to be scared any longer mm-hmm. of coming to the hospital because of COVID. We've got Dr. Sheila Singh with us on Toronto Today, pediatric neurosurgeon at McMaster. And, and I, I'd i ask you whether we are facing a scenario in the healthcare industry similar to maybe what we're facing at, uh, at universities, where we've got some professors that want to be back in the classroom. And some have gotten maybe it's a comfort thing and but and maybe it's a fear thing and maybe it's a rational fear and maybe it's an irrational fear. But do we have a divide in the healthcare system with uh, doctors, nurses, uh, receptionists that um, that just have to get more comfortable with it? Shutting down the healthcare system for some to to focus on covid. That was never supposed to be a long term strategy. But I would think anything after 21 months would be considered long term. And we've got to we've got to turn that back around. That's exactly right, Greg. And I don't know whether it's a combination of um, long-term anxiety, um, sort of unmitigated fear, or convenience or comfort. Probably a combination of all those things has driven a certain population of healthcare providers to prefer, um, you know, the the sort of more virtual route or or less access for patients. And we've got a very stern message from our college. Uh, probably about six weeks ago, the CPSO did send an email globally to all doctors in Ontario advising us to resume in-person visits and to ramp up our medical care again, telling us that it was safe to do so. So I think if doctors are getting that message, then patients should be getting that message too. It's another thing as well. It's one thing, as you know, at the start of the pandemic, we're all very confused. We're learning about the virus. We're trying to figure it all out. And and even when we when we sent kids back to school, Dr. Singh, in September 2020, we we did it with gritted teeth and, and bated breath. But it went well. And we realized how, you know, I, I don't want to say are unvulnerable, but less vulnerable kids were to a bad outcome from covid than, say, people's parents in their 70s it's one thing to tell them hey try and avoid um you know going to a hospital try and avoid getting yourself in a bad situation but for kids um especially we should feel that utter confidence that uh, that that we shouldn't have we shouldn't have slowed down a lot of these exams and and certainly when there's something wrong with your kid don't ignore it at this particular point whether you whether it's covid related or not you've got to get that stuff looked at Absolutely. And I think you're right. I think at the very beginning, of course, there was a great fear when we were dealing with the unknown. But as I said, in very short order, we developed really great standard operating procedures to reduce viral transmission. And at that point, you know, looking back with the benefit of, of you know, the retrospectoscope, I think we, we really would have liked to resume a lot of other healthcare services earlier, simply because for every action, there's a reaction. And for everything, you pay a price. And because we've decided to shut down a lot of things for COVID, we are now going to see an increase 
in advanced diseases across the spectrum of non-COVID-related diseases. And now we have to be prepared to deal with that. Before you go, I, I, I know uh, there's probably no way to even put a number on it or a exponential percentage in terms of what you can accomplish, Dr. Singh, examining a patient in person compared to staring at a computer screen uh, it, it, it there's probably just no value uh that is you know that, that we could attribute to how much more difficult it is to to do things like diagnose a brain tumor um in a kid uh, there's no way to do it that's very true greg and maybe i'll tell you that even before covid um parents should know that brain tumors are rarely diagnosed uh, quickly, because they're very rare diseases, fortunately. And so we're, we're not necessarily looking for those symptoms. And so even before COVID, it would often take three, four, five repeat visits to the emergency room or to the doctor in order for a brain tumor to be diagnosed at the best of times. So I think that's the key thing is that, um, you know, in person is better because this is a very rare diagnosis requiring, you know, expert uh, 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 looks at children that can really be best accomplished in person. So uh, again, not every um, you know, not everybody uh, working in healthcare works in the same building and has those same circumstances. If uh, for our listeners who are parents, if their um, if if their pediatrician, if their family doctor pushes back on the idea of an in person visit and and suggests a virtual visit, how do parents push back on them and insist on it? So, I mean, that's an excellent question. And that comes to where I really encourage parents to advocate for their child. And what I think they should say back to their pediatrician and their doctor is, look, this is a new symptom or this has been going on for some time now. I do not want to have a virtual visit because I believe that you need to examine my child in person. So I would like to be seen in person. And simply having that rational conversation should trigger any healthcare provider, especially with that CPSO message that arrived yeah. uh, in our inboxes. That should trigger a doctor to realize, my goodness, they're right. I, I do need to examine this child. And yes, you should come in. And short of that, um, the emergency room is always there for you. I've been in the hospital almost every day since last March waiting for anybody that needed to to see me. So uh, the only problem with that advice is that, as you know, the emergency rooms have been overwhelmed and that prompted the message from the CPSO because since primary care and pediatricians were not seeing people in person in offices, that resulted in a huge increase in emergency room visits. Uh, thank you for doing what you do. Thank you for this message uh, this morning, uh, Dr. Sheila Singh joining us. We really appreciate it. I hope we can chat again. Thank you, Greg. Me too. Uh, she's a pediatric neurosurgeon at McMaster University. And uh, we're doing a lot of New York City guests. That's great. I love New York City. I can't wait to go back. Um, it's no Boston, but that gets New York City people really upset when you say it's no Boston. Justin Spiro is a school uh, social worker that was on the show. He posted a DM a high school kid sent. This is often the argument you hear about masks. Well, my kid likes it. My kid doesn't complain. Yeah, it's exhausting to complain. It's exhausting. You ever argue with, uh, with, with your partner or spouse? You're worn out afterwards. That's a workout in itself, especially when you're wrong. Take the L once in a while and don't argue. So he writes Justin Spiro and says, of course, no one says they hate masks, social distancing measures, etc. But we're all thinking it. Legit, all my friends, I like the language here, legit, all my friends are vaxxed, so you'd think they'd liven up on the restrictions. But no, I live in Illinois, so we have it just the same as you in New York City. Just wanted to say the young people see what you say, and it's so appreciated. Thank you so much for advocating for us and trying to bring us back to normal, really hoping for a normal freshman year of college experience. And my, you know, Justin Spiro posts that. We had him on last week. And my advice to that kid and my advice to people, we were just talking about universities not being back in session and you paying full freight. 
You're going to have to fight for it. You're going to have to battle for it. Like there's going to be there's going to be advocacy that you're going to have to utilize in this process. I want to bring on uh, Daniela Jample, uh, who um, I spoke to her a couple weeks ago and found her uh, Twitter feed fascinating because she's been outspoken about this. Daniela, thanks for making the time up here in Toronto. I describe you as an activist, but um, is that (laughs) nobody puts that on their business card? But um, these are emotional, pragmatic issues for parents, aren't aren't they? Yeah, I. I wouldn't describe myself as an activist. I think I'm just a mom who, um, see, you know, is maybe a little louder than most other moms and um, is just frustrated, really, at everything her children have to go through. But, and thank you so much, Greg, for bringing light to this issue and taking the time to speak with me. Every time I do it, I hear constantly from parents via text or they send me a DM and they're like, you know, I, I do a lot of things wrong, I'm sure, but they say we need more people talking about it because the, the best way I can put it is last Thursday, uh, a dad said to me, why is my six-year-old wearing a mask 35 hours a week? And, and he would document that she hates it. This little girl puts on a mask every day, goes to school, finds it uncomfortable. It's not ill. It's ill-fitting, whatever. Can't see her teacher's face. They can't. He can't see her or she can't see hers. So, and he says, why am I doing that to protect a person that's had an opportunity to get vaccinated for 11 months and has not to? And I don't have a good answer anymore. I had no answer probably three months ago, but I sure don't have one now. I don't have an answer either. And, you know, I, I don't know what it's like in Canada, but in United in the United States, masks are very political. They were politicized early on and people have not let go of that politicization of it. And um, here it's it's difficult to even talk about masks because in New York City, you know, everyone's very liberal. And mm-hmm. if you say like, hey, maybe kids shouldn't be masked for 35 hours a week, especially when most adults aren't at this point, you're just immediately dismissed as like a conspiracy theorist. So um, it's it's not an easy road to walk. It's re- it's really something, isn't it? Because we're I can tell you in Toronto and, and in our area here, we're utilizing mask policies in schools that we had 12 months ago when zero percent of the population was vaccinated and we had three times as many cases. And I make the point constantly. Cases aren't the same. You know, we're vaccinating like mad and cases are going up. What's that tell us? What's that tell us both about not about the vaccine, but what's that tell us about who can pop positive and, and who can't? What does that tell us about masks? I do think masks can limit the spread, but I worry the danger and the inherent problems that it presents for our kids, not, let alone normal kids like yours and mine, healthy kids like yours and mine, kids with speech impediments, kids learning a new language, kids with hearing problems. Think about the problems it presents for them seven, uh, seven hours a day, five days a week. Right. And I think you really hit on something really important. I like, I agree with you. Masks probably do prevent some spread, right? They're not a hundred percent though. They're not zero, but they're not a hundred percent. And, but people have become so conditioned that they think that they are a hundred percent effective. And that if you have a mask, you're, you're fine. You're great. You can do what you need to do. You just have your mask on. And there's, and there's also no concurrent discussion of the downsides, So, and even, so even if they do limit spread a little bit, we have to look at, but at what cost? And you made a really great point. You, when you're three, four, five years old and you're learning how to speak, even if you are a neurotypical healthy child, you're learning how to speak, you're learning how to read facial cues, you're learning how to socialize in groups for the first time in your entire life. And now you have to do all that 
while having half of your face covered and half of everyone else's face covered. And we don't talk about the trade-offs for little kids in that, which I think are really important. I have a little girl who just turned four. She's in pre-K here. And for and she went to um, school last year as well. Her entire school life, she has been wearing a mask. That is, that's, mm-hmm. I mean, that to, if you think about it, that's kind of mind boggling. She's never been in a group setting where she's learning and playing with her friends without a mask on. That cannot, um, intuitively, we know that that is not a good thing, but it is kind of forbidden to speak about it. And there's been no, without having to, without being able to speak about it, we can't really address, we can't have any sense of what this is doing to our children. Danielle Jample, our guest on Toronto Today, Global News Radio 640 Toronto. I also think at that age, I also think about the five, six, and seven-year-olds. Again, my 15-year-old gets what he's doing. My 13-year-old gets what he's doing. They don't have to love it, and I sure don't love it for them. But I think about a six-year-old. A six-year-old probably thinks that they're in danger. And we can't, no matter how we convince a six-year-old, six-year-olds aren't meant to think about each other. Of course, they're, you know, we teach them to be polite and hold a door open and help a friend who's being bullied and all that stuff. But I worry we've made these kids feel they're the ones that are unsafe. Not It's not about protecting grandma. It's not about protecting another adult. Or even last year at this time, Daniela, an unvaccinated teacher. I got it then. I don't get it now. Yeah, I agree. And I think we're all, not only are our kids learning that they're, they're the, un, they are the spreaders, but they also feel like they are unsafe, but they, yeah. that their mask protects them. And then when you try to talk to them and tell them, Hey, you know, you don't need to wear a mask in this situation. My children sometimes refuse. They refuse to take it off because they don't feel safe in the situation. And, you know, I'm not going to bully them and make them take it off, but it really, affects me that they that they've internalized this that they you know when they go into a store and there are other people in the store that they feel unsafe around other people that's a really horrible thing to do to a little kid to Mm. to create more anxiety to create more feelings of being unsafe and and not being secure especially when it's not necessary Mm. um and i i have a seven-year yeah i have a seven-year-old as well and sometimes we go into stores and she pulls her mask up and I say, you don't need to wear one here. And she says, but it just makes me feel better. Um, and that it, it makes me sad for her and for kids like her who feel that who we've conditioned to think in this way. Well, I worry. Look, there is that term and this is a highly politicized term, isn't it, Danielle? Virtue signaling. And but but virtue is important. It's important to have virtues. It's important to care for others and evolve language and behavior and all that stuff. But again, talk about an age group that doesn't necessarily get that. So I've heard this from more than enough people. Well, you keep wearing the mask because it shows you're concerned about others. But when does that stop? Because I never want kids that don't care about other people. I never want kids not looking out for the greater good. But if this like if this goes on in perpetuity, you tell me where the off ramp is. I don't see one. Yeah, exactly. Like what happens between now and whenever masks come off? to make it okay to take masks off. I completely agree because I don't see it either. The off-ramp was supposed to be, you know, grandma and grandpa got vaccinated and now we can just kind of go about our lives. And we blew, I don't know about Canada, but in the United States, we blew right past that in April, 2021. So I don't see what is on the horizon in the future. Now in the, here, we just had kid vaccines approved for ages five Mm -hmm. to 11. And 
I'm somewhat hopeful that that is its own off ramp. But then I look at middle schools and high schools in New York City, where 12 to 18 year olds have been eligible for vaccination since I don't even know, April, May of last year. And they're all still 100% masks, you know, three feet apart, not normal school at all. So I I, I don't see the path to getting to normal. And that also worries me because Mm. already I'm resigned to this year, but to keep this going is really just horrible for children. Danielle Jample, our guest, uh, thank you for being vocal. Thanks for spending time with me, uh, trusting the process, and I hope you'll come on uh, again. I I think this is such important messaging. Thanks for coming on with me. Thanks for having me, Greg. Absolutely. Absolutely. Danielle Jample joining us from New York City. I'm seeing this map. Uh, Megan Ranny is a uh, brilliant, brilliant uh, pandemic voice. She works at Brown University. She's an emergency room doctor, and she's um, she's listed some COVID um, kid data this morning that I find really interesting from the U.S. These are the good news about the vaccines. Utterly safe, as she describes it for this age group. Utterly safe. Again, what have we talked about? Nothing's without risk. Nothing is uh, 100% certainty. But the good thing is we've seen, we're have seen we seeing all this real-world data in Canada, south of the border in the United States, and it's really good. And the uptake for vaccines is 11.5% of the age group. That's, a, that's actually a bit better than I thought it would be. But you see the difference. Minnesota, 21%. Uh, Georgia, 3%. Okay, you see where this is going. California, 15%. Mississippi, 3%. So, yeah, it's, uh, and our friends in Michigan, 12%. Our friends in New York State on the border, 11%. But Massachusetts, right beside, well, not quite right beside uh, New York State, is at 32%. Different levels of uptake. We'll see where it goes for Ontario, but a uh, solid response, if you will, to the first day of vaccination booking. Um, I want to bring on our weekly uh, guest at this time. She is pharmacologist Sabina Vora-Miller. It's great to have you on. Thanks for making the time. Hi, thanks for having me. I uh, Yesterday was a pretty, uh, I'm sure, exciting and yet nervous day uh, to some extent for parents. When the vaccines actually happen, they'll be nervous. But I, I think we all could look, Sabina, in, back in 2021 and go, when all of us as adults got our first shot, it was a pretty a pretty empowering moment. There's, a, there's some emotion involved. I know how I felt when I first got it. I know. And can I tell you, the, the messages I have received from parents yesterday, it was a happy day. It was such a happy day. I received so many, um, you know, almost tearful messages from parents excited about booking their vaccines for their kids. And everyone had to message and tell me, I got my date. I got my date. And it's just, it's just so fantastic. I think it's been a really long and hard last two years. And it feels mm. like perhaps the end is almost in sight. Now, I know you, you documented on Twitter, you've got a little one that is not eligible to next year. Is that a little little bittersweet? Uh, how, do, how does that land for you emotionally? Yeah, you know, I, I, I feel so happy for everyone who has kids in that 5 to 11 age range. I just can't wait to have the vaccine approved for the under five. I know it's coming, but, mm-hmm. you know, it's just, like I said, it's been really long and, um, really looking forward to that point. I think I will for sure book my appointment and then, you know, happy cry. And I think most parents, that's really something you say that, that I think most parents uh, makes me feel emotional. I think most parents look and say life's about circumstances. So you and I have talked before and, and I think I have, sometimes I'll talk to somebody who's got a three-year-old and a four-year-old and all have empathy because for about 
more than half that child's life uh, we've been dealing with COVID. But then I explain my situation. They're like, oh, yeah, you're kind of running out of runway here. You're going to have a kid going off to college in three years and another one finishing grade eight. And we want we want that sense of normalcy. So there's that, you know, we come from different intersections of, of having empathy for each other, I hope, as parents. Absolutely. Every child has gone through a lot, a lot of sacrifices, a lot of things that they've missed out in their lives at any stage of their lives. I think that we have to acknowledge that, that children have had a really hard last two years. And I think that the vaccines are really going to help bring back some normalcy to their routine, to their lives, to allow them to get back to doing the things that they've really missed. Um, and, and I think that, uh, you know, every child has, has, has paid a price. Pharmacologist Sabina Vora-Miller, our guest. Uh, we had Dr. Uh, Isaac Bogosh on yesterday. He said the eight-week break between the shots, and I mentioned the states, uh, some of the states' numbers and demographics that are impressive, but they're going three weeks. He says it's a no-brainer to go eight. I know you dig deep on these numbers. Uh, does, is Dr. Bogosh on the right track that, w- track that will have the most efficacy longer term by waiting two months out? Yeah, you have to look at the big picture in these situations, right? What, are we, what, what can we do to actually make sure that when we're giving these vaccines to our kids, it has good efficacy, good, long-lasting, robust efficacy. And there's also some data that is going to be coming out showing that the risk of myocarditis might be lower if you're actually having a, a gap of eight weeks between the first and the second dose. And again, the idea here is the long picture, the big game, right? And, and that over here is the eight-week intervals. And in fact, we do it for adults as well, and it makes sense to do this. Um, you know, I think that obviously there should be circumstances where um, a deviation might be necessary based on the child's very, very specific circumstance, which we kind of did with adults as well. Um, but for the most part, the eight weeks is the right call to make. Sabina Vora-Miller, our guest. Um, Dr. Zane Chagla pointed this out a couple days ago, and, and I want to get your read on it. He's he's done a couple things in the last week and a half. He's documented how a lot of the growth and a lot of the um, the art, the art, you know, the reproduction number and um, the uh, the spread among the unvaccinated is in smaller towns, rural areas, people that, that might not have been coming into contact with that many people. And maybe they don't need the mandates to go as many places as much as we do in the bigger cities. But what he documented, Dr. Chagla did, Sabina, is is that generally speaking, and Dr. David Fisman pointed this out yesterday, too. Toronto is doing really well. That might be our vaccination rate. We know how to risk mitigate, but they also bring up the concept of natural immunity and post vaccine. That's an important conversation to have, is it not? Absolutely. I mean, you know, I think we have to remember that uh, with natural with infections, you do get immunity as well. The only issue with immunity post-infection is that sometimes there are people who just don't mount mm-hmm. robust enough, um, uh, you know, immunity after an infection. Um, and so that's why it's always recommended that even if you have had a previous infection, you should get vaccinated. I think there are studies that show that those who had previous infections and not vaccinated were five times um, at a higher risk of getting reinfected versus those who were fully vaccinated. So absolutely, there is immunity that does come with infections. But at the same time, there are people who just are not able to actually mount um, a robust enough immunity after an infection. Um, but, but definitely, this is playing a role with how you know, well we're doing in Toronto. We've had um, a you know, really, really high uptake of vaccines in Toronto. And that's because I think the Toronto public health has gone above and beyond with making sure that they're meeting people exactly where they are. And that, those are the strategies we need to be actually employing across Canada.
Um, we just had a parent on but, uh, from New York City. She's got three kids. The youngest is four months. That that kid, obviously, that that baby can't be uh, vaccinated. But she's been adamant about masks. And I bring it up with you co- pretty regularly. I want to know if, if you're hearing from parents. Not, not about policy now, but are they hoping that after this window of time, an eight-week window, a 12-week window, that we start to have more? You and I have talked about off-ramps, more conversations about off-ramps as we head to the spring. I think we're. I think we can get there. I think if we actually see a good uptake of vaccines in children, um, we start giving booster doses to all adults who are post six months um, from their last dose. I think we can get to a point where we can talk about how um, to slowly take back all these measures and get back to some sense of normalcy. Um, but again, I think a lot is going to be dependent over the next few months to see how, what our cases are going to look like, what our booster rollout is going to look like, and what the uptake in the children um, mm. is going to be. I hear that loud and clear. Yeah, an important week uh, and an emotional week uh, for for all parents. Thanks for your advocacy. Thanks for making time for our show, as you always do. I appreciate it. Anytime. Thank you. Sabina Vohr-Miller, our guest. Our next guest, just playing one of the most accomplished uh, Canadians on the international scene uh, right now. He runs a, uh, a group, an NGO, that watches the United Nations and looks for hypocrisy, looks for violations. He's a human rights activist, and he weighed in on Twitter on the TDSB's cancellation, if you will, of two guest speakers, including the guest we had last Monday, criminal lawyer, notably for uh, Jan Gameshi a few years ago, Marie Hennen. Hillel Neuer joins us from Geneva, Switzerland. You um, you had strong opinions on this, and you look and you say high school kids, especially girls, should be hearing from these two women. Give me your sense of, of what you saw from the coverage and how you felt about it. Absolutely. I mean, I, you know, if I were in high school, I'm about to meet a Nobel Peace Prize laureate, someone who was a victim of some of the most horrific atrocities of our time, who, who had the, the strength of spirit to not just survive uh, the, these atrocities, but to move on and to devote her life to helping others. It's really extraordinary and inspiring. And for a high school student in Toronto, for girls in Toronto to have that opportunity is, is a rare privilege. And for someone in a school board not to see it, but to be so, um, to be so misguided by, by the pressures, the extreme social pressures that have arisen in the past, I would say, three, four years in particular, uh, over certain doctrinaire notions of diversity and certain groups that she thinks uh, you know, need to be protected um, is, is just really sad, and it's, it's dismissive of, of their own, uh, you know, the intellect. Life is complex, and, um, and I think that people in Toronto, can, girls included, can deal with the fact that there are ordinary Muslims and there's the Islamic State, just as the, the, the person who organized the bookstore, the book club, rather, uh, said to the superintendent that, you know, don't conflate regular Muslims uh, with the Islamic State. That's a, a very small group of, of murderous terrorists. And, um, and Najib Morad was a victim of, of the Islamic State. She wasn't a victim of one billion plus Muslims around the world. 
Hillel Neuer is our guest, by the way. Uh, he's joining us live from Geneva, Switzerland, executive director of UN Watch, which is a human rights non-governmental organization uh, in Switzerland. Yeah, as you lay that out there, I think as a male, I'd like to hear her speak. And I, I can't, you know, when, when we talk about, you know, breaking down gender barriers, I think what a tremendous influence she'd be to speak to young men to have a better understanding about aggression in other parts of the world. I, I wouldn't even want this limited by... Uh, you know, uh, by how someone identifies with with a gender or or how they were born. Look, we, 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 some things have become really upside down uh, in society in the United States and Canada, and, and I'm based in Europe, and it's, it's happening a little bit in Europe too. Is um, we have uh, outrage over uh, someone, you know, using a pronoun that's considered improper, not using the right gender specific pronoun. Um, and you'll have riots over an editor who said that um, uh, that um, uh, that buildings matter when buildings were being torched in Philadelphia. And an editor mm-hmm. of the uh, newspaper there said that you know torching buildings is not a good thing. He got fired. People get fired over the slightest perceived infraction, and yet here you have someone who is a victim of genocide, a victim of crimes against humanity, a victim of you know rape by the most atrocious terrorist in the world. And there's no, no sensitivity for her for having suffered the worst crimes because it, it might um, it might violate what this superintendent thinks is the ultimate crime, which is committing a crime against official diversity or, you know, Islamophobia, which, of course, this has nothing to do with Islamophobia. So I, I think things are, are, are really upside down. And people who truly have suffered the worst atrocities have 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 yet no sympathy um, because it doesn't check the right box. And so I I think judgment here by the, the superintendent of the Toronto District School Board is really wanting, and I, I think it's it's reflecting um, uh, a failure to to appreciate complexity, um, to respect that individuals, including students, have uh, have intelligence and can make distinctions. And, and, and young students don't always need to be, uh, you know, protected from some perceived criticism of others. Uh, it, it's completely misguided. And uh, I think that many people around the world think that this movement has gone too far. And it's time to restore some basic common sense, basic judgment, and, and to stop displaying this enormous ignorance that that we'll see. I worry about our universities and as somebody who obviously <laughs> took college and uh, and where it can lead you very seriously. I'm sure many of our listeners did as well. Do you worry that it's not the same environment that it might have been 25 30 years ago for for people like you and me where there was I could be in a Middle East politics class and there's open discourse and debate and sharing of ideas. I was in an African politics course, same thing. I worry sometimes that, you know, in a few years I'll send my first kid to university and I don't want him afraid to to listen to different opinions and I don't want him afraid to to speak out when he feels something's right or wrong. And he won't always get it right, but there will be what we call teachable moments. Do you worry our colleges and universities are preventing those moments right now? Uh, I do. I do up here. You know, I, I, I had the honor to, to receive an honorary doctorate from McGill University where I, I attended law school. Uh, back in the 90s, and, and I, I, I attended the ceremony about two, three years ago in Montreal. And I'll be honest with you, I was sitting in the ceremony, and, and they said nice things about the work uh, that I did in my organization, United Nations Watch in Geneva, and the Geneva Summit for Human Rights and Democracy that we organized with 25 other groups, and all that was terrific. But 
they, when I sat in the ceremony, listening to various language and certain things that were said during the ceremony, I'll be honest with you, I didn't recognize the university uh, from the one that I had attended not that long ago, you know, uh, 25 years ago. Doesn't seem that long to me. And uh, all kinds of sort of politically correct, you might want to call it woke references and language. And I, I do have the impression that, you know, you mentioned this, this, um, this danger that just the, the great thing about universities is meant to be that it's a place where, where you can have the most open uh, form of debate and inquiry and search for truth, you know, an unadulterated search for truth. And universities, more than any other place in society, is where that can happen. And precisely, it seems that, that, that today that is the very opposite. The universities might be the most closed places in society where, where you know, the, the lawyer um, who you interviewed, um, mm-hmm. uh, she, she said, oh, she went to give a talk on campus in, I believe it was in Toronto, and they had some, uh, someone got up on stage and said, and she's a prominent criminal lawyer, Marie Hanen. Is that right, that's right. Yeah, so she, she was going to give a talk and she was interviewed, I don't know if it was in the Toronto Star or elsewhere, and she said that someone got up on stage from the university and said, just so you know, uh, uh, counselors are available in case anyone gets triggered by something she might say. And she said, this is just, you know, absurd that there's a prominent criminal law uh, defender and, and a teacher of law, and that something she might say is going to trigger people. You know, college students won't be able to deal with it, they're going to need counselors. It, 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 it ticks the wrong box. And I, I do think that liberalism as, as a, a organizing principle of society is under attack. It's certainly under attack from the extreme left, and, and there are also on the extreme right those who have extreme nationalist views who are also not friends of liberalism. And I think what keeps our societies together are basic notions that we, I th- I'd say that we took for granted. Freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, the idea. I remember being on university and having very profound debates with people on all kinds of subjects, whether it was political subjects, religious subjects, history. And there was, in what I thought, classic Canadian style, a, a great respect for discussion and debate. And, you know, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe you're wrong. Let's talk it out. Mm. And I, I feel that absolutely opposite today. Today, if, if someone has an opinion that you don't like, you shut them down. If that person comes on campus, Activists come and start shouting and screaming and protesting, and they don't even want to hear the person. And everyone will end up stuck in their Twitter echo chambers, and no one will have a chance to learn. So, yes, I do share your fears. Hill Norrie, our guest, uh, having a great discussion with him live from Geneva, Switzerland, on Toronto today. Um, it, it, and language is part of that. Like, I would make the case that, yeah, words matter. The words we use matter. Some of us are not using words that our parents and grandparents used, and there's an evolution of opinion. But it takes time sometimes to get to that point. When you look at North America, we kind of, we, we, yeah, we need to progress. We also need to recognize that that progress has to have a pace to it, and we have to also realize how fortunate we are not to be in a lot of these other places in the world. Yes, I, I, I agree with you. You know, society does change and evolve, and, and I think that's a good thing. There's, uh, you know, many, many great things have, have evolved and more recognition of vulnerable groups and minorities than there was in the past. And, and I think, uh, you know, my opinions have changed on a number of things, and, and I think that's great. At the same time, uh, revolutions can go too far. We've seen that uh, in, in many cases. And I think what's happened in... Uh, society in North America in the past five years is kind of a revolution. Um, 
uh, in social justice, on issues of race, on issues of gender identity. Um, I think there's a terrific book by Douglas Murray called The Madness of Crowds. Uh, he's someone who himself is gay. He has a chapter on, on, on gays and gay rights. And he talks about how a lot of the demands that are being made in, in, in some of this area are, are not clear. Things are, are complicated. There's a lot of things we don't know. And he talks as a chapter on race and a chapter on transgender. And he, he mentions actually that, that in his book that it seemed that just as the train is pulling into the station on many of these issues, on, let's say, on the, on the struggle for racial equality, just as our societies are more equal than they've ever been before, and of course they're important. Of course, they need change. Our, uh, the founder of our organization, UN Watch, was a great American civil rights leader named Morris Abram. Mm-hmm. Morris Martin Luther King was his attorney uh, and was a, a leading figure in the civil rights movement in the 1960s and 70s from Georgia. And uh, if you compare uh, the, the status of African Americans in the United States today to what it was in the 1960s, it's an extraordinary difference in the early 60s. There was a form of apartheid in America, but blacks could not vote in, in southern states and, and had institutionalized discrimination. That's completely gone. And yes, there are challenges that remain, but the notion is rather strange that if you pick on gay rights or on race or on, 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 on women's rights, that just as societies are more equal than they've ever been before, um, that's precisely when certain revolutionaries, if you want to call it that, say that the entire system, and this is said repeatedly, the entire system must go. The entire system is rotten. Um, but I, I don't think we need to accept some of the extremism that we've seen. And like you said, I think uh, it, it's fine for society to evolve and change, but there has to be a certain place in it, and there has to be certain common sense. And I think some of the things we're seeing uh, are defying common sense. That's a little Neuer, a Canadian human rights activist. Uh, she covers Ontario politics for the QP Observer. You can find her on Twitter at Sabrina Nanji. She is the aforementioned Sabrina Nanji. Thanks for getting up early for. I mean, what else besides sleeping would you be doing in the 6 a.m. hour, right? Yeah, they're they're really keeping us busy at Queen's Park this week. Feels that way. Um, you know, lost in a lot of shuffle uh, complaints about the vaccine portal. Um, we're going to talk about the emergency powers, but uh, a lost in a lot of that was the um, environmental report um, from the auditor general. Like it's 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 got a lot of people that are I would describe as pro environment and environmental groups very up in arms. But as you could see and, and I could see, it's hard for it to really penetrate the news cycle. It's it's big stuff going forward. And, and you'd think the opposition parties would be front and center talking a ton about it going into uh, into the spring election next year. Yeah. And, you know, it's actually a, a point that the Auditor General, Bonnie um, Lissick, had, had brought up when she released these environmental audits. Uh, it's something that, you know, it's, it's somewhat new for her office to be looking into this. As you know, we've uh, the, the Ford government has scrapped the standalone watchdogs position, and, and that might be part of it. But even the auditor general was saying, you know, some of these issues aren't um, grabbing headlines and the public's not aware. And so that that's part of the problem here. But the upshot essentially from this report is that the Ford government is basically ignoring um, their duty to consult the public uh, when it comes to decisions that are really impacting the, the environment. Um, there is also you know, uh, reports that the government's letting polluters off the hook for certain costs for cleaning up things like hazardous spills. Um, they're allowing companies to harm at-risk species. Just so so much going on here. And, you know, we already know that, especially with the last federal election, that climate is, is a big issue for voters. So I think, you know, we, we're going to be hearing a lot more 
from the opposition parties on it. But you know, uh, uh, there's a lot happening at Queens Park this week, and so lots of lots of uh, talk about doses for kids, you know, that type of thing. Um, I think. There's not a lot of buzz about this report, but I don't think we've heard the end of it yet. Ontario potentially, Sabrina, going ahead with with Highway 413, and if we if we lump in the Bradford Bypass as well, that was a big you know big talking point last week. If government does indeed change, and you know any form of construction is already underway in the last six months, um, this is this might be a tough one because I sure don't know the answer. But has the opposition parties? Have they indicated at all how easy this would be to reverse construction? Once the 407 started, for example, there was no going back. Even when we got into liberal governments post Mike Harris, you were just stuck with the 407. That's how it was going to go. Yeah, I mean, that one's going to get complicated, too. And actually, we did get a little bit of a hint from the Auditor General because, as you know, the opposition parties. Um, have been asking her to dig into those highways too and look at some of the costs and and you know some of those questions that you're talking about might might uh, you know we might shed some light on that uh, if the AG decides to look into it she hasn't agreed to it but she did say that she thought it was valid since these uh, controversial highway projects are a huge part of the Ford government's uh, you know re-election um, bid here and they obviously see it as a, as a way uh, you know for them to to hang on to power. Uh, but but you're right. Plenty of questions around around this right now. These controversial projects, which the opposition parties have promised, you know, to cancel that, that they'll nip that in the bud if, if they're elected. Um, but but there's a lot of questions about the money on, on these projects as well. And that uh, you know, I, I am kind of hoping that the auditor general looks into this. She has the power to see um, and access documents that the public and journalists might not be able to do so easily. So, uh, you know, if she did look into it, it could give us maybe some more answers, certainly more than we're hearing from the Ford government these days. Sabrina Nanji joining us from the QP Observer. Um, I'd ask you about uh, the, the controversy that flared up yesterday. The portal opens and, and my recollection in vaccinating my teenage boys in the summer was, yeah, I had to go in there two different times. And uh, thankfully, and I had to do one of the vaccines, um, well, my wife was uh, overseas in Japan at the Olympics, so I was juggling a lot of balls. But I can imagine for parents who wanted the simplicity of booking multiple uh, booking the same appointment rather for multiple children. Um, that became kind of the talking point yesterday, not how many people signed up, but just that it was incredibly difficult to get the same appointment in the same geographic location. And the provinces, uh, we played audio of Catherine Fife asking uh, Minister Elliott about it, and she was basically like, um, well, you can always use the phone. That's not a great response in 2021. Yeah, and I think, you know, it's a lot of um, bittersweet feelings from parents uh, that I'm hearing from these days. They're, they're happy that they can, you know, have they have, finally have this chance now to book doses for their kids. Um, you know, and, and the opposition critics here are also pointing to BC. It's not the best comparison for the Ford government because families over there have been able to pre-register on their vaccination um, booking site. And, and you're right, you know, this is, this is confusing because some parents have had to, um, you know, book multiple doses. Some are even forced to go to different locations for, for their kids. You know, that's really inconvenient. But I think at the end of the day, you know, parents are feeling a lot better. Um, mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's a sigh of relief that they can get their kids these doses, especially as the winter's coming up, holiday gatherings, um, you know, the the, with with the the school break and and now we're getting take home tests. I think that people are feeling a uh, you know not not the smoothest uh, that rollout right now, which seems to be a, a bit of a trend here with with vaccine uh, inoculation rollouts here in Ontario. But uh, so a few hiccups. Um, I don't know if we're going to get any changes to that to that pro problem of multiple mm. uh, appointments. But you know I think I think it's bittersweet and. Uh, 
the silver lining is that at least kids are getting vaccinated. Last thing for you, I'm, I'm real curious to know if you spotted this last week. Obviously, you know, Doug Ford was making an announcement about electric vehicles and and the uh, the building and production of them. And he didn't he's usually slammed the door on the idea of the rebates. He canceled the rebates that ticked a lot of people off. And he makes the point, well, you know, I have millionaires buying hundred thousand dollar cars. That's not really it. There were middle class people that wanted to buy forty five thousand dollar cars and feel like they're helping the environment and charge the car. And uh, and then all of a sudden the rebates are gone and, and the, the juice just juice wasn't worth the squeeze for some parents economically or some families economically with the eligible vehicles. He's kind of left that door open a little bit. Meantime, yesterday, I note Stephen Del Duca said he'll give families an incentive of eight thousand dollars on the purchase or lease of eligible electric vehicles. It's going to be interesting to see. We'll have a lot of balls in the air next year, won't we? But we'll, it'll be interesting to see if that remains or comes to the forefront as an election issue. Yeah, electric vehicles, I mean, all parties seem to be saying something about it. And it's interesting to see the stances that they're taking. You're right that the Ford government is focusing more on the manufacturing side of things, you know, making the batteries, um, pr- producing those vehicles here, uh, as opposed to, you know, incentives for individuals. And they are spinning this as, you know, they don't want to help out the millionaires who can afford these cars. But what I'm hearing behind the scenes from liberals is that they kind of the same thing about the Ford government staycation tax credit that, um, you know, you have to spend a thousand bucks to go on a vacation. Not, not everyone can do that. Um, and that that sort of helps, you know, the wealthier folks uh, go on a vacation. So there's there's some back and forth there um, and it'll be up to voters to decide what they think is the is the best way to go about it. But it seems like electric vehicles, everyone's getting on board with them for 2022. Yeah, I'm looking at the Hyundai Kona, by the way, and I don't get paid a dime from uh, Hyundai, believe me. But uh, but it starts from forty four thousand nine hundred ninety nine dollars. Now, I might get the eight year uh, buying plan to keep the monthly payments down, Sabrina. But either way, that's not a Tesla. That's not that's not one hundred fifty thousand thousand dollar car that's just something practical that gets people from point a to point b and they want that yeah and you're right the premier hasn't completely shut the door on it but i, I don't know if we'll see much uh on that front from them they, they seem to have at least you know shied away from it at this point and and even yesterday we heard the economic development minister um responding sort of informally to Stephen Duca's promise saying you know that they're they don't agree with with that direction, um, and Stephen Del Duca's got to do a little bit more than sort of uh, recharge uh, liberal era promises, which you know the, the Ford government, anything um, you know past liberal government did, uh, they like to tie that to, to Kathleen Wynne, and, and that doesn't seem to be working in Stephen Del Duca's favor. There, they like to remind people of some of his political baggage. So a lot of politics behind this fight. You can read her at qpobserver.com. It's great to have you on. Thanks very much for uh, spending time with us early in the morning. Thanks, Greg. Sabrina Nanji uh, joining us and follow her on Twitter at Sabrina Nanji. Great to have you along. Thanks for making it to the end of the Toronto Today podcast for Tuesday, November 24th. Back with a lot, or rather Wednesday, November 24th. Back with a live show tomorrow. Uh, We'll be lively while we're live as well. 530 to 9 right here on Global News Radio 640 Toronto.